Viewer discretion is advised. Baseball presents Big League Tips. Look what you can learn about a baseball game from reading the box score. Each player's times at bat, runs scored, hits, and runs batted in. The inning-by-inning score, who made errors and extra base hits, how each pitcher did, how long the game took, and the attendance. Box scores help you spot the hot pitchers and hitters. Add to your baseball enjoyment. Read a box score today. Baseball fever. Catch it. The proceeding was a message on behalf of Major League Baseball. Bottom of the 12th inning. Well, the tying run is at second, but the game right now is at the plate. And look who's coming up. We've got Ichikawa, Chris Kimmel, David Ortiz, George Brett, Joe Carter is the batter. Now listen to the ovation. As he comes up to the plate. If he gets his pitch, I want him to drive one. Can't wait. 3-2. In the air. A drive to right. Deep round toward left, the infield overshifted. Here's the pitch. Swung on, belted. It's a long one. Deep in the left center. Back for John Fito. Back, 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 back. He makes a one handed catch against the bullpen. Oh, doctor. Hey, Dave, the day's over. Time for Bud Light. I can't. I have to cut the cheese. I thought you cut the cheese already. It wasn't me. I heard you cut the cheese this morning. I like to cut the cheese in spurts throughout the day. You should cut the cheese first thing in the morning like me. Otherwise, it starts backing well, up. I couldn't. My girlfriend was here this morning, and you know how that goes. I cut the cheese in front of my girl once. I never heard the end of it. You ever see a woman cut the cheese? Nah, they don't do it right. They're too delicate. My grandmother cut the cheese all the time. Especially as she got older. Hey, guys, I'm going to be in the back. I'm going to pinch a loaf. <laughs> Want me to pull your finger? Will you pull my finger help me cut the cheese? Oh, yeah. If I pull your finger, you'll be cutting the cheese within seconds. Oh, yeah. I have to run. Gotta drop the kids off at the pool. We used to take the train to Prospect Park, get off at the Prospect Park station, and then walk through toward Botanical Gardens and then make that right turn, and there it was. Ebbets Field, the home of the Brooklyn Dodgers, the most intimate ballpark in baseball. I would go into the rotunda and walk through a series of gangways, and suddenly, it was like spring in your heart. You walk out, and it's beautiful emerald green diamond and the colorful scoreboard and 30,000 people max when I went there I really felt given my loyalty that I was on holy ground somehow and I walked around the place went and found my seat I had a pretty good seat you know I was up in the loge over first base so I could see everything 
And then when I think back on it, the park was so small that everybody had a good seat. Well, Evanston was a cozy, cozy, cozy place. In five minutes, you could meet everybody in the stadium. Our fans knew each other because they were there every day. The players in those days would always come over to the stands and sign autographs and kid around with the fans. Pee Wee Reese and Jackie Robinson, Campanella. They were not only great players and heroes of yours, but they were personal friends. They were part of your family. And the players were part of this too. I remember being on the mound, and I could hear the people in the stands. And if they have a bad day in Brooklyn, if we did, hey, they let you know it big time. But when you had the good days, listen, nobody can support you stronger than a good Brooklyn Dodger fan. I think the real fan was a Dodger fan. You had the less of an elite element and more of a kind of a rowdy, noisy neighborhood crowd. Welcome to my dojo, those other pods are so so I'm too like bro, yo, focus like a GoPro Ripping up this promo, check out the scoreboard Freaks, I'm throwing no-nos, it's going, it's going, it's going Yo, it's gone, your heart just stopped Cause Jake got strong and mighty Undefeated, I mean it Pull up the stride, pull it down and read it Written, produced, directed, and mixed Dumb on your lips and Ozzy Smith backflips Pick a tip, any tip, get on to it I got ridiculous pods without forcing it You sit at home crying like a girl while I spread the gospel around the world Yo, the pods are written behind tracks that mix it Smooth with the groove to make ears wanna listen Add a little cut and a rhythm to back it up Another show to my name, no, I'ma stack them up You think another white rap pack, but this ain't no act jack My hobby's to rhyme, some people try to be black with that About time I come out, call the show PKP and let me turn it out Yo, name Jake the Snake, born in 71 Dates, you know what time it is, I'm packing them guns Yo, experience, I've been a witness to glory And that's why I call like ball players and their stories. You heard? So, once again, back is the incredible, the pod animal, Jake the Snake Robinson from the Let's Talk Baseball Podcast Network. I'm coming out of Paulie's Island, South Kagalucky. Half man, half podcast machine, back in the Captain Kurt chair, shields down, photons up. Prepare to engage on this week's digital audio program that I call Backwards K-Pod, where we collect ball players and their stories. What's good, C-Meds? What's cracking? 
Welcome back into the dojo for yet another edition of BKP, where my mission is to preach the gospel of baseball every week to seamans just like you around the world. Through the watershed moments, characters, pop culture, and in this week's case, the stadiums that have been woven and stitched into the DNA fabric of the American national pastime. Hello everybody, I'm Jake Robinson. I got your hook up. Holler if you hear me. And man, oh man, what a season for the ages we have witnessed in the MLB. Nothing about this season has been the script. What's up is down, down is up, white is black. Nothing about the 2023 season has been predictable at all. The playoffs are now... Full throttle go in their respective league championship series as all the division winners, with the exception of the defending champion Houston Astros, who are still allowed to tell the tale, as Baltimore, Atlanta, the Dodgers, well, they were all put on their ass by wildcard teams. And as a faithful fan of the Orioles, the pain of losing to the Rangers was almost unbearable after, you know, such a successful season. But there is a lesson to be learned there as the O's had their not quite ready for the dance moment as they were outmanaged, outpitched, outhit, and outdefended by Texas. The baby birds will learn from this experience and they still have a young dynamic core to work with. Personally, I'd like to see them go after a Blake Snell or the Japanese hurler, Shinobu Yamamoto. The head of a rotation of Braddish, Means, and Grayson Rodriguez next year. Maybe get a back end of the bully guy to augment the closer role for a year. In the absence of the mountain, Felix Batista. He's going to miss the 24th season after TJ surgery during the offseason. It was a painful lesson administered by Bruce Bochy and the Rangers. So, Texas is now in a dogfight with the defending champion Astros. And I told you last week, if there was one team who could survive the week-long layoff between, uh, you know, after watching these wildcard games, it was a grizzled veteran Houston unit that could probably pull that off. The Astros do currently find themselves in a two-games-to-zero hole, dropping the first two games of the ALCS to Texas at the Juke, uh, the Juke Box, Minute Maid Park. And in that very first game, Evan Carter continued his incredible rookie run. I mean, he's covering the outfield like he's Jim Edmonds, lacing ropes all over the field. And uh, Jordan Montgomery, Gumby, he was superb. Game two, the Rangers jumped out early in an ambush. Now, the Astros made a game of it late, but at, you know, this time the defense of the Rangers was the difference to me in that game as... Uh, third baseman Young looked like, you know, 1977 Greg Nettles over there at third base. So, Texas is in really good shape, but don't count out the Astros till their hearts are literally ripped out of their chest and pulsating in your hand. As for the NLCS, Bilby has the best home field advantage of all the teams left over, in my opinion, and they are riding the wave of emotion and passion being offered up by their fans. First pitch of the game, uh, game one versus the Snakes, NLCS, and Schwarber just jumps all over a Zach Gallon fastball for a blast. 
And a few batters later, Bryce Harper celebrating his birthday. By the way, he's worth every single penny the Phillies pay him. And he's leading this band of Phillies through his amazing play. Fiery Will. He drops Dong on Gallon's lips. And the Phillies went on to a game one victory. And they hold a one to nothing advantage over Zona. So the conclusion of this journey to the World Series is nearing. But we have these championship series to finish off. At this point, it appears that the Phillies and Rangers control their own destiny. We'll just have to sit back and watch it all play out. I'll be there every step of the way. And, you know, I'll be here every week to give you the comprehensive weekly breakdown of, you know, the postseason results until we finalize this whole 2023 season out. But, look, freaks. I got a full plate to clear this week. Got a lot of meat on them bones. And I'm ready to get after it. In fact, I see the catcher is throwing that ball down to second base. The umpire is called play ball. And the infield, they look ready to go. So, if I can get all you freaks here at Tampa Station to hug and kiss your loved ones goodbye, I'd like to load up our BKP time travel choo-choo as I call all aboard... And I'm going to set our time and destination for April 9th, 1913 for the inaugural opening day of one of the true iconic throwback cribs in the history of Major League Baseball. This week, we will do a deep dive into the life and sudden death of Evans Field in Brooklyn, New York. And freaks, I got to tell you, as a baseball historian, there are just some baseball cities that I thoroughly enjoy researching. Filthy, Montreal, Kansas City, Chicago. Of course, my hometown of Baltimore, the birthplace of arguably the base of baseball, Babe Ruth. And I absolutely love the baseball tradition and history of New York City. Now... As a fan of a rival team, I have grown up rooting against a certain team that resides in the Bronx all my life, but that doesn't diminish my love and appreciation for that baseball, you know, that city's uh, baseball culture and heritage. The baseball universe is quite expansive, but New York City is a big chunk of the Big Apple Pie. And if you're a fan of any of the teams that have ever resided in New York City, then those rosters that you grew up with are your heroes. If you are not a fan of any of those teams, they are the ultimate villains. No one loves or loathes New York teams like baseball fans. And that's the way it should be. New Yorkers are tough, they can handle it. It's just another facet of baseball that separates it from other American team sports. And this week, we're going to dig into a game when New York City was baseball royalty with three dominant Major League Baseball teams in one city. And 
we haven't done a throwback crib in a hot minute, and I've been kind of sitting on this one. And before we get started, I was just sitting there thinking about this amazing stadium collection we are massing here at BKP, especially our throwbacks. Let's see, I got Shine Park, Crosley Field, the Polo Grounds, Forbes Field, Old Comiskey Park. All these bios are in my catalog of over 100 shows, and you can find BKP on all platforms, wherever you listen to your podcast programming. Or you can go on over to DiamondSnakeJTopPodbean.com and check them out. So, I'm chopping at the bit here to add this week's topic to our collection. Now, throughout sports, there are certain franchises that have such a story tradition that their legacy and history will never die. And the Dodgers fit this bill as the team and their ballpark dominated the Brooklyn Borough landscape for over 40 years. The history of baseball in Brooklyn dates all the way back to the 1850s, back when Brooklyn wasn't even considered a part of New York City. It was its own city. In 1884, the Brooklyn Baseball Club becomes part of the newly founded American Association and their first home park, their first home park was a wooden stadium, and it was named Washington Park. So, for the first 30 years of the franchise's existence, the Brooklyn team went through a myriad of nicknames such as the Athletics, the Grays, the Robins, the Bridegrooms, the Superboss, and the Trolley Dodgers, before just shortening that to just the Dodgers. And... Sidebar freaks, I was just thinking about all the name changes the the Braves had, right? From the Pilgrims to the Bees to the Bean Eaters. And I believe the Giants were once called the Gothams, if I'm not mistaken. I don't know, some of these names they were presenting in the early days, they're just fascinating to me. But I digress. Okay, where was I? The Brooklyn team would join the National League in 1890. They split time in Washington Park and Eastern Park until 1897 when a new Washington Park was built for the team in South Brooklyn and opened on April 30th, 1898. So again, this is another wooden ballpark that had a seating capacity of 16 to 18,000 fans. Charles Emmett buys the team in the early 1900s, and around that time, Fenway, Wrigley, Tiger Stadium, they're all, you know, impressive concrete jewel box structures rising up in the downtown areas of baseball cities across America. And after reading the trends, Mr. Emmett now has ambitions of his own concrete jewel box stadium in Brooklyn, New York. And I've explained this in the past, uh, throwback shows. Stadium engineering was moving away from wooden ballparks as they had the propensity to collapse from the surging numbers of more and more baseball fans packing the cribs as the popularity of the game begins to build. And they also had to worry about fire. Most of the old wooden ballparks of yesteryear suffered from one or both of these fates in the end. Now, originally, 
Abbott's had ideas about building the park on the site of his current stadium, Washington Park. But he deemed it too costly and an unwise investment. So he began scouring the borough, looking for land to construct his baseball vision. One day in 1905, he is walking through a part of Flatbush that was known at that time as Pigtown. It's a parcel of land along Bedford Avenue and Cedar Place, located along Prospect Park. It's now considered a part of Crown Heights on the Prospect Leopard Gardens border. But back then, Flatbush had a much larger landscape and universe. Although it was the slums, over 40 people owned parcels of land there. The savvy-minded Mr. Evans realized he could buy a tract of land down Bedford for pennies on the dollar. And it would be near nine train lines, perfect for spectators throughout New York City. So, that very same year, Evans begins purchasing land. It took him six years to buy up 12,000 parcels in total. And by 1912, Mr. Evans had finally acquired enough land to construct his ball yard vision. There was no eminent domain for stadium construction back then, so Charles patiently purchased the land over the years and he toured the new baseball cathedrals that are rising throughout the country with architect Clarence R. Van Buskirk to get a pulse of the evolving baseball universe. City and team officials broke ground on March 14, 1912, and Charles announces the new baseball pantheon would be christened Abbott's Field. Now, the cornerstone of the foundation was a piece of Connecticut granite with a hollowed-out center and held newspaper clippings about the impending build, pictures of baseball players, cards, telegrams, and almanacs. And that cornerstone was laid on July 6, 1912. And at the cornerstone laying ceremony, Mr. Evans promised the stadium would be ready to play on September 1st, and he guaranteed that the Dodgers would win the pennant in 1913. And here we are, folks, coming out of that wormhole straight into Brooklyn, New York, April 9th, 1913. And it's just barely, barely a year after breaking ground where the Dodgers and those damn Yankees are preparing to square off for the first game ever, a preseason exhibition contest, contest in this iconic crib. And I'm always amazed how fast stadiums were completed back in the day without all the bureaucratic horse shit we deal with now. One year, freaks, that's all it took to complete this work of art at a cost of $750,000. 750k in 1912, it has the purchasing power of around uh, $238 million in the 2023 economy. 
Newspaper coverage going into today's game has been glowing as Ebbets Field has been declared a monument to the national game. And some scribes have predicted it could last upwards of 200 years. Now, in retrospect, none of the predictions by Ebbets or the newspapers would be accurate. On August 29th, with this September 1st guarantee drawing near, it was obvious the ballpark was nowhere near to being ready. It was announced that if Evans had sold shares in his team, uh, he had sold shares of, in his team to Stephen and Edward McKeever, who had built their fortunes in contracting and were able to speed up the process to make up for an ironworker's strike that summer. And if you remember the Fenway Park show, they had to deal with an ironworker strike as well. So, Evans sold the brothers 50% of his shares, which would lead to management collapse some years later. But by early 1913, Pigtown had been transformed and rebranded into Evans Field, where some of, the, some of baseball's biggest moments and greatest dramas were ever played out. But... The 1913 Dodgers didn't even come close to winning the pennant, as Evan had promised. And as far as the prediction that Evans Field would last 200 years by the writers, well, she lasted for 47. The first game here on April 5th, 1913, as you can see, is a hot ticket. The stadium is packed to the rafters with 30,000 paying customers, and the Dodgers have had to turn away over 5,000 fans as there isn't nearly enough seats left to be had. The Dodgers would lose today, but the community of Flatbush could care less. There was now a source of pride out on Bedford Avenue that seemingly overnight had changed the perception of Brooklyn. The Dodgers would lose a second exhibition game to the Yankees on April 7th, and that was in front of only 1,000 fans due to the... Uh, cold and inclement weather, the first official season game played in Evans Field occurred two days later on the 9th of April as Brooklyn was shut out by the Phillies, one to nothing. And you might be sensing a pattern here with the, the losing. In fact, for the first three decades in Evans, the Dodgers were horrendous. But the fans didn't care. They filled up the old bird uh, you know, they filled up neighborhood bars. There was a lot of cheering, playing instruments, pretty much using the team to have an excuse to have a summer of parties. And many of the team members lived in the neighborhood. They were known around the local dives and shop owners. Mr. Evans himself brought a home in the Fish Terrace section of Flatbush out on Glenwood Road where it dead ends at the subway. More so than maybe any other sports franchise in America. The Brooklyn Dodgers were deeply entwined in their community. The players, for the most part, lived in the hood. They had off-season jobs there. It was commonplace to run into a Dodger uh, at the gas station or in a grocery store. And ultimately, as ball clubs sometimes do... The Dodgers got better. They signed a bunch of amazing ball players that would be their foundational core for nearly a decade together. A veritable who's who of baseball names that have spanned generations of baseball time. We're talking real deal ballers like 
Pee Wee Reese, Gil Hodges, uh, Roy Campanella, as the guy said in the clip, the Duke of Flatbush, Duke Snyder, and of course, the legendary Jackie Robinson, who would smash the gentleman's agreement with his game-changing play and racial profile. Now, thankfully, the Dodgers in time would entrust their front office under the stewardship of the Mahatma Branch Ricky, who was previously with the St. Louis Cardinals in the 30s, building gas house gangs and winning chips. And you have listened to this show since the beginning of its inception. You'll know I hold Mr. Ricky in the highest of a scene. In my mind, he is the greatest baseball GM who ever lived. He built three NL teams in the World Championships and the Cards, Dodgers, and Pirates. He invented the farm system, for Christ's sake. He, he, he introduced batting helmets, broke the color line by signing Jack Roosevelt. He stole Clemente from the Dodgers and what has to be the greatest Rule 5 grab ever. I've had some people push back in the past, but for my money, they don't come any better than the Mahatma. Now, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on Jackie or Branch Ricky on today's show, but I have the Jackie Robinson bio in the archives, as well as one on Branch Ricky. Both of those shows are in my banging ass catalog of over 100 shows at BKP, and by all means, check those out. Now, I do want to break you Seamheads off on some tape. I found uh, from the voice of Brooklyn Dodgers' Red Barber. And he's talking about his honest reaction of learning about Jackie's arrival to the big club. The voice of the Brooklyn Dodgers, Red Barber. It was a shock to me when Mr. Ricky told me in confidence that he was going to bring a black player. He told me this before the Avenue Robinson was coming. He told me this in March of 1945. And he didn't uh, come in touch with Robinson himself until late that year. But I knew Mr. Ricky when he said he was going to do something, he was going to do it. And I had to examine myself. Because Mr. Ricky gave me time to either make up my mind to broadcast properly through a very stormy period or quit. And my first reaction was, when I came home, told Alan that I said, I'm going to quit. I don't think I can go through with this. And she said, well, very wise woman. She said, you don't have to quit right now. Let's have a martini. And I began to think about it as the days went by. And I had to understand that it was by chance that I was born white. I could have been born black. I could have been born uh, to any, any parents, any place, any time. Judge Landers was not dead. And as I wrestled with myself, I heard the voice from the grave saying, report. And that's all I was to it. That's all, they want. all I did about Robinson. I merely reported him. And he did the rest. And Jackie Robinson, long a spark plug for them bums, gets them off and running to prove how rough it can be. Mr. Ricky said to Robinson, I know you're competitive, proud of the competitive. I know you have stood on your rights as a black man, including fighting the United States Army until they gave you an honorable discharge. But the only way that you can be the first black man to successfully integrate baseball is that you must accept the injuries 
We must accept the theme balls. We must accept the profane foul curses. And that's the story of Jackie Robinson. It's not in his base hits and his percentage or his stolen bases. To me, the story is Robinson, the spiritual man, who didn't answer back for three years. And that is what made it possible for the other. tell you, man, I, I could listen to Red Barber read a phone book, for Christ's sake. I mean, that is such a cool story. I love his honesty, and I love the way that, you know, he learned from this. You know, he learned lessons from this, you know, letting Jackie into the league. I just think that is really cool to hear Red Barber tell his account of what he felt like in honest words when Jackie Rob, when it was told him that Jackie Robinson was coming to the big club, in addition to the housing and blossoming this core of gifted ballers, Evans Field also introduced Flatbush to the world. The Dodgers were one of the first teams to start broadcasting home games on TV. The Flatbush fan became branded as everyday Americans who love to have fun, but were also very down to earth. Historically. Flatbush has always been a hasn't always been a, a place where people of different races have been peaceful with one another. But that began to soften uh, when Jackie was on the team uh, during the fifties. Uh, with every passing productive season by Jackie and the acceptance by the Dodgers fan. As Jackie be a part of this family, as the years tick away with Jackie on the team, the Flatbush fans saw themselves as a cut above these all-white teams in Major League Baseball with their progressive team profile and the makeup of the era. And what I mean by that is the Dodgers fan back then, you know, they would play the Yankees who were like so corporate and they, you know, they were lily white. You know, and the Do- the Brooklyn Dodgers fans in Ebbet Field, they felt a couple a cut above. Like, they were enlightened people. Look at these the rest of this country, all the rest of these teams, you know, still fighting the Civil War. And here we are, the progressive Dodgers. And the Dodgers fans, even though historically there wasn't always peace between the races in Flatbush, and there's probably still not to this day, at this point, with Jackie on the team, they did feel... A little bit special. And any racial tension. And post World War II Brooklyn. That existed in Flatbush. Was left outside the gates of Ebbets. When there was a Dodgers game. Fans would buy their tickets. Sit down next to one another. And root for them bums. After a hard day's work. The people in the tight knit community. Would head to Ebbets. To drink a beer or two. Or twelve. Or maybe sit in the backyard with the neighbors with Red calling the game while you stand over a grill of steak and burgers. And Red Barber once said, If the words on the Statue of Liberty meant anything to anyone at all, it would apply to Brooklyn back in the old days. Flatbush had blacks, Jews, Italians, Irish, Poles, and others working hard to make a living. And they all cared passionately about their Dodgers. And I tell you what. I think this is where I'm going to break this week, Seamheads. 
When I get back, we're going to talk about some of uh, Evan Spiel's more prominent features. We'll talk about some of the big moments that played out on the sick of grounds of Evan. We'll talk about the death of the old ball yard. So, Acts 2 and 3 when we return. Let me gather my thoughts, get myself centered, hydrate, and break you off the rest of the history of this amazing throwback crib. BRBC events. More on Evans Field when I return. Robins right now? Well, I can have a beef while I'm at Sunday. I get two scoops of my favorite Baskin Robbins flavor, my favorite topping, real whipped cream, nuts, and even a cherry on top. And then, when I'm all through, I can add another baseball over to my growing collection. Baskin Robbins baseball sundaes, just $1.95 each. Collect all 26 now at your nearby Baskin Robbins. So cloudy 
when it used to be so clear and the summer went so quickly this year yes there used to be a ballpark right here Howdy y'all, it's the Pod Squad, Gage Geek, executive producer of the Backwards K Pod. For the last few months, I've been telling you about our sponsor, Laferose Hanger, a powerful trifecta of products that eliminates fish, seafood, and bait odors as well as the spices on your hands from steamed crabs and delicious crawfish boils. And now, this amazing grassroots company has added a buffalo wing handful. These are the only soaps and wipes on the planet specifically formulated to be used after eating spicy food or after a long day of fishing. Not only does the fishing hand cleaner get rid of bait pumps, crawfish hand cleaner, clean hand cleaner, removes the spicy things around your mouth and on your hands. An ingenious invention by a retired Navy shipmate of Jake. So he and his family, folks. The one thing we do at the Let's Talk Baseball Podcast Network is take care of family. Till the end of September, Lap Rose Hand Cleaner is offering all BKP listeners an amazing deal and hopes you give them a shot. It's a buy one, get one free deal. Hot lean hand cleaner wipes, fishing hand cleaner wipes, or soap, seafood hand cleaner. Buy one, get one. The only advertised products on Backwards Case Pod that Jake and I believe in and use personally. After ripping up the golf course and watching football, there's nothing I love more than throwing some bait in the water and cracking a cold bud head. You can check out these amazing products by going to crawfishhandcleaner.com or you can call the home offices at 713-588-0290. To get that BOGO deal, Please use the code SUMMER23. For your fishing vacation you're planning or the shellfish buffalo wing feast you're preparing, get yourself this groundbreaking product to protect you from smelling spicy hands. That's crawfishhandcleaner.com or call 713-588-0290. For the buy one, get one deal, use promo code SUMMER23. Fishing along the bank of your favorite river and listening to BKP sounds like a great idea. In fact, hey Mom, where are my poles at? I'm gone fishing. Well, the signs in Ebbets Field were <laughs> really remarkable. There was a, a sign in right field that said, Lanolize your shoes with Esquire boot polish. And there was a song, Lanolize your shoes with Esquire boot polish. And you will look handsome all day, boom, 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 old gold cigarettes. And of course, Schaefer beer atop the scoreboard. Wantonly wrinkle-proof ties. I'm 80 years old, I have never encountered a wrinkle-proof tie. Gem single-edge blades. And the most famous of signs is one of the smallest under the scoreboard. Pit sign, winner suit. Abe Stark Clothiers, Pitkin Avenue. And all the time I covered the Dodgers, I watched the Dodgers as a kid. Nobody could hit the sign. 
You could not hit that sign on a fly. First of all, you couldn't hit a line drive two feet high to go all the way out to the outfield <laughs> and hit that sign. That sign was never hit. Better known as Brooklyn. Never taking shots because Brooklyn's the bomb. We did it like that and now we do it like this. We did it like that and now we do it like this. <laughs> yeah. Now plot kids who got the cocaine. Don't tell me it's the little kids on soul trains. The metaphor sent from my brain to my jaw. It comes from other places, not the tinted faces. Journalistic values are yellow and then of course falters. You watch Channel Zero with that have you believe black invented crack when President Lyndon had the formula way back in 63 with Kennedy? Yes, the double cross. Remember that's when they blow it. Head off. Vietnam vets come back looking like one-armed pests. Nixon bombs, pure text. No picket fence, no job, no exit in the car. Blue collar turns to bourgeois. Depressed in your chest. Demoral for cess. No dough. Crack and veils much less. White he can sell on the corners of Bushwick. White he can sell on the corners of Welcome back to Backwards K-Pod, where I've been hard at work unraveling the story of one of the most indelible throwback jewel box cribs there ever was, the majestic Evansfield, formerly located in Flatbush, Brooklyn. And I tried to lay the path to Evans through the history of Charles Evans buying up parcels of land in an area known as Pigtown, which is currently the Crown Heights Districts. And after six years, he finally has the 1,200 parcels of land he needs to begin construction of the ballpark that will eventually bear his name. And here we are, April 9th, 1913, after their inaugural opening day in Evans Field, where Brooklyn will lose to the Phillies by the final O, one to nothing. And stepping off our BKP time travel choo-choo, off the myriad of trolley car tracks outside the crib, you get a real sense of the intimacy as she only seats 23,000 and she will increment, incrementally expand to 30,000 fans max by the time of her death. But as you can see, the 23,000 seats here on Abbott's this first opening day consists of a covered double deck grandstand that extends from the right field foul pole and around to the third base side. A lower level of seating continued down the third baseline to the left field foul pole. On opening day, that first one, an embarrassing problem arose that apparently no one had the foresight to recognize beforehand. Evans Field had no press box and they really wouldn't have a fully functional MLB standards press box until 1929, a total of 16 years later. One of the most iconic features of Evans are her 
were her uh, red, red brick facade and swooping long arches that you see in stadiums in today's game in cribs like City Field, Camion Yards, PNC, etc., etc. As we walk through the home plate entrance, you can look up and see, and probably, it's probably Evansfield's most prominent feature. It's a huge 80-foot rotunda made of Italian marble to greet the fans. And I'd like to think it's a reminder by the baseball gods you have now entered holy baseball grounds. 12 years after that first game in Evans history, the club will squeeze bleachers into the outfield. They also got that press box I told you about. No longer did the scribes have to use two cordoned-off rows of seats in the upper deck to cover the team. In 1931, the double-deck grandstand that I told you about down the right field line, behind the dish, and down to around third base, well... That gets expanded. It now runs completely down the third baseline, this double-deck grandstand. Around the left field pole and into center field. The upper deck in left field, it hung over the playing field, and it played well to right-hand power bats. Also that year, a hand-operated 40-foot scoreboard that concaved and angled in... The middle of the newly constructed right field wall was erected. Now, after that flurry of upgrades in 1931, very little change for the ballpark for the rest of her history. Now, many hardcore Seamans may know that Johnny Vandermeer of the Cincinnati Reds is the only player in Major League Baseball history to throw back-to-back no-hitters in consecutive starts. And that's a record that will almost assuredly never be snapped, especially considering the era we're in right now, where starters are routinely pulled after six. So, think about it. Three starts in a row with the perfect bullpen appearances in those games. I know you were supposed to never say never, but, yeah, I'm saying never. It ain't even gonna happen again. What many fans do not realize is the second no-hitter of those two was hurled in Evans Park on June 15, 1938, and the first ever night game in the ball yard's history. Nah, what, 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 what? And you just know there had to be some salty Dodgers on the bench that day complaining about how night games is just a gimmick that will never ever work, right? Nah, what, 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 what? Johnny Vandermeer shutting him down under the lights. The park had a neighborhood feel. And because of its intimate seating, in theory, you could say hello to everyone in the baseball palace in five minutes. Hilda Chester became a popular woman who sat in the bleachers, made continuous noises throughout the game, shaking her cowbell. There were also sounds reverber- reverberating over the then state-of-the-art speakers as Gladys Gooding, the first full-time organist in baseball history, could be heard banging out some of the same ballpark classics you may hear from an organist in any Major League Baseball park today. And you can't talk about Evansville without acknowledging how the outfield walls were just plastered in these OG-type advertisements. The most famous signs were the massive 
Schaefer's beer ad that hung atop the 41-foot scoreboard in center field, and the ad kept fans abreast of scores rulings on whether the ball was a hit or an error. It was a hit that H and Schaefer would light up, and it was an error the E would light up. And below the scoreboard, there was the infamous Abe Stark Taylor sign, where if you could hit the sign on a fly, that player could win a free suit. And as you heard Larry King and author Roger Kuhn on that clip coming back from the break, no one ever hit that sign. Ever. And I believe that the Crossley Field Show that I dropped, that's in the archives right now, I believe they had a sign in left field of that park where if your dog touches it, they get a new suit. And if I'm not mistaken... Wally Moon won like seven suits or something crazy. I could be wrong on some particulars there, but that's just a shot across my brain as I was thinking about this unhittable Abe Stark sign at Ebbets Field. They had advertisements for a wrinkle-free tie. The one sign that I was fascinated by was the old gold cigarette sign. It's just... So weird, after living the past 30 years or so in a world where smoking cigarettes anywhere in a major league stadium or within a five-mile radius around any fan is now strictly prohibited by major league baseball. For me, it's just jarring to see a cigarette advertisement in an MLB stadium. And if that ain't enough, here, check out this Red Barber commercial uh, that he cut in the press box where he's pimping out these old gold cigarettes. Hello, everybody. This is the old redhead, Red Barber. Y'all set for another big baseball game at Brooklyn? Well, that's fine. Let me show you for a second how I get set for a ball game. First, I uh, move up here against this microphone. Got my old golds handy. Put my ladder right down there where I can reach it. And now I'm really ready. Just as long as the game goes, I'm going to look at it. Never so often when I get a chance, I'm going to light an old gold. I really like this cigarette. For my money, it's the tastiest I've ever known. Smooth and mild. They give me a treat instead of a treatment. And you know what the old gold folks say, don't you? We're tobacco men, not medicine men. Old gold cures just one thing. The world's choice tobacco. To give you a treat instead of a treatment. That's what I want in a cigarette. And I have an idea that's what you want, too. So you see, I'm all set. How about you? Got your old goals handy? I hope so. Then you'll enjoy every second of the game. Now they're about ready to go. So suppose you light up your old goals, sit back, and take it easy. And let's see what's going on. Now this red barber's saying, I hope you have a good time. And... I don't know, man. Sitting here in the 2023 social climate, I just find that commercial to be fascinating. You know, uh, Red Barber sitting in the catbird seat, uh, you know, pimping off these cigarettes. It's just crazy. In the late 1940s, going into the 1950s, Evans Field began showing signs of being structurally unsound. The plumbing was a mess. And had a puny capacity and narrow aisles. And 
the things that made Abbott's, the Joe Box Palace of the Past, began to now work against the aging ballpark. It was completely constrained by its location. There was no room to expand. And the community surrounding Abbott's was in decline as well. And as I explained in the Polo Ground show, that's also in the archives, the automobile boom absolutely destroyed the sustainability of both of these throwback cribs. Evans Field had only 700 parking spots to accommodate their fans. In 1946, club owner Walter O'Malley commissioned Captain Emil Prager to design a new stadium in the borough to be constructed with private funds. The two did not publicly unveil the new vision until 1952. O'Malley stuns the New York press when he presented the plans for a 52,000-seat structure, the first dome stadium in sports history to be built in Brooklyn. And this is 1952, freaks. O'Malley faced several challenges and disputes towards accomplishing his vision. His most notable problem was acquiring land for construction. Kind of like Charles Abbott's walking around Pigtown in 1905, right? The owner was willing to be a tenant in a state-owned stadium, but opposition from one of the most powerful people in New York City at the time, a Mr. Robert Moses, prevented this from happening. The ill-natured tension between the two had led to disagreements between the two men, which leads O'Malley to make threats that the decision should be made wisely or New York could actually see the unthinkable. The New York Giants and the Brooklyn Dodgers relocating to the virginal MLB baseball cities lying in wait for them in California. The team did, in fact moved seven home games in 1956 and 1957 to Roosevelt Stadium in Jersey City, New Jersey as a negotiation tactic of leverage against the city. Her demise is near complete in 1955 as a real estate conglomerate bought the ballpark. By then, the worst kept secret in New York City was that the Giants and the Dodgers were making good on their threats and the two franchises with their exodus were nails in the coffin for the golden era of New York baseball. On September 24th, 1957, the Dodgers played their final game at Evans Field, a victory over the Pittsburgh Pirates. The following season, they were playing in L.A. in the Coliseum, while their new ballpark, Dodgers Stadium at Chavez Ravine, was being built. Another amazing stadium I've covered here at BKP. And that is as riveting and sad a story as you'll ever find. The construction of Dodger Stadium. If you haven't heard it, you should definitely pull that up. In fact, maybe you should listen to this show as a prequel and then listen to the Chavez Ravine pod in in one continuous timeline. I don't know, just a thought. The demolition of this once proud and grand ballpark began on... October 23rd, 1960. And seats from the stadium were sold for $5. 
and pieces of sod for 25 cents. The flagpole located in Centerfield was donated to a company in Flatlands, New York, but its whereabouts are unknown today. The concrete granite cornerstone I mentioned in the beginning and some other artifacts are located at the Baseball Hall of Fame in Cooperstown, New York. So, before I go all young MC and bust a move, I begin taking you all back to your loved ones at Terrapin Station. Let's wrap this puppy up with a little refresher and some final details about this iconic ball yard, Evans Field, at 55 Sullivan Place. And if you are in New York City, launch your drones and set the coordinates for 40 degrees, 39 feet, 54 inches north, by 73 degrees, 57 feet, 29 inches west, and hover that bad boy. You are now directly above the ghost of Evans Field. The stadium has since been replaced by an H-shaped apartment complex formerly known as Evans Field Apartments, but the name has since been changed to Jackie Robinson Apartments. The attendance capacity ranged from 18,000 in 1913 to 35,000 from 1937 to 1945. The left field foul pole sat 348 feet from home plate. Left center power alleys was a mere 351 from the dish. Center field was 399 feet. Right center field power alley was 344 feet. And the right field foul pole was only 297 feet down the line. So, it's a band box. It almost sounds like an AL East ballpark today. It certainly is an old Comiskey. It broke ground on March 4th, 1912. And the first official game was played a little over a year later on April 9th, 1913, a 1-0 shutout loss to Filthy. The cost of construction was $750,000, which is around $250 million today in uh, 2023. The architect was Clarence Randall Van Buskirk for the Castle Brothers Incorporated. There were a total of 12 ticket turnstiles and 12 glided ticket windows. Kids could watch games through a gap under the metal gate in right center field. They also had a band in the stand, uh, in the stands that constantly played music throughout the game. And the kids watching the game through the hole in the fence, they were coined the not, not hole gang. The band performed in the stands were called the Brooklyn Dodgers Symphony. And I'll be doing a bonus pod on both of those topics at some point here at BKP. The cobblestone Bedford Avenue, it had a slight incline, which led to the field having a slightly higher grade in center field as opposed to right field. Baseball's first televised game was played at Evans Field when the Dodgers faced the Redlegs on August 26, 1939, and hosted the MLB All-Star Game in 1949. The only year the Dodgers won the World Championship while tenants of Evans Field was 1955. When finally, after losing to those damn boogie down Bronx Bombers five times in the 1941, 1947, 1949, 1952, and 1953 World Series, they finally broke through against their tormentors for years. And fans of them bums, as they were affectionately called by their supporters, would proclaim the war cry, 
wait until next year. Well, 1955 was finally next year as they dispatched the Yankees in seven games. The same wrecking ball used in 1960 to bring down Evans Field would be used four years later to demolish the Polo Grounds. For a period of time, the 41-foot scoreboard had sat atop the right field scoreboard at McCormick Field in Asheville, North Kagalaki. And the eight light towers were moved to Downey Stadium on Randall Island. And finally, the Dodgers were not only tenants of Evansfield. Uh, I'm sorry, they were not the only tenants of Evansfield. Through the years, Evans housed the NFL Brooklyn, Brooklyn Giants in 1921, the NFL Brooklyn Lions in 1926, the Brooklyn Dodgers-Tigers NFL team from 1930 to 1944, the NFL Brooklyn Tigers in 1936, Long Island University football in 1939 and 1940, and the Brooklyn Dodgers AAFC football team from 1946 to 1948. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, seamen of all ages, this is the story of Abbotsville. And folks, I think this is where I'm going to call it. I feel like I captured the spirit of Ebbets Field, and I hope you will agree. I want to thank all of you for taking time out of your day to listen to me pontificate the seams. And I promise, Reeks, I'll try to be better next week. And look, if you have some great tales about Ebbets I may have missed, got wrong, or glossed over, Hit me up, by all means. I'm not perfect, man. I'm a human being. I do the research, and I give you what I learn. But if there's something I missed or something I got wrong, by all means, hit me up. Let me know. And before I bounce, there have been so many magical moments inside of Ebbets. But here's one last call by the old redhead sitting in the cat hood. This is the 1947 World Series Game 4. The Dodgers would lose to the Yankees this year. This is the first year with Jackie on the team. Probably probably should have been their best chance to win a World Series. One of those five losses in the World Series that the Dodgers suffered at the hands of the Yankees. However, in Game 4, Yankees pitcher Bill Bevins has a no-hitter going with two outs in the ninth and the Bombers holding on to a 2-1 to lead. And even though he's issued 10 walks in the game and surrendered a run, uh, Bevins has a date with baseball history. If he can nail down this last out for the final frame, he would become the first pitcher in baseball history to record a no-no in the World Series. And with a man on first and second, Cookie Lavagetto walks to the plate. And, well, let's let the old redhead tell it. Thank you, stepping in. Wait a minute. Stanky is being called back from the plate, and Lavagetto goes up to hit. The Yankees are ahead 2-1. to one. Jean Friedel, the pinch runners at second, the tying run. Mixes the winning runs at first base. Both have them on with walks, both the pinch runners. No hits by Bevins. Eight and two-thirds innings. Two out last of the ninth. The pitch to Lavagetto. Swung on and missed. Fastball. It was in there. Strike one. Jean Friedel walks off second. 
Makes it up first. They're both ready to go at anything. Two men out. Last of the night. The pitch. Swung on. There's a drive. Hit out toward the right field corner. Henrik is going back. He can't get it. It's off the wall for a base hit. Here comes the tying run. And here comes the winning run. They're killing Lavagetto, his own teammates. They are beating him to pieces. And it's taking a police escort to get Lavagetto away from the Dodgers. Ah, what, 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 what a great call. The show email is backwardskpod at gmail.com. You can find us on our YouTube channel or our TikTok account under backwardskpod. Our Twitter handle is... Uh, our Twitter handle is at back underscore K underscore podcast. Or you can always find me hanging with the audience on the Let's Talk Baseball Podcast Network Facebook private group page. And by all means, come on in and join the chaos. And with the Abbotsfield bio getting smaller and smaller in my rearview mirror, I now turn my attention to our Never Say Die Baseball Hydra and I chop. The head off that beast, only to see two more baseball topics appear in its place next week. I'm going to talk about the preeminent slugger of his day after Babe Ruth and Lou Gehrig. Next week, I'm going to dip into the life and times of Jimmy Fox, double X. And other than his incredible numbers, I truly do not know much about double X. I know he was a farm boy from my home state, Sutlersville, Maryland. And I know he was a fucking beast. Other than that, I know very little. So I'm anxious to learn and present his story. But y'all know the deal. That's another story for another pod here at Backwards K Pod, where we collect ball players and their stories. I will never charge you C-Meds for the baseball content. I need empowered C-Meds walking the planet, handing this game down. I'm just going to keep coming through every Tuesday with that free baseball smoke. You don't want that smoke. And I'm going to keep it consistent like Drysdale, baby. And my work here is done, I believe. Vinny, Vinny, Missy. I came, I saw, I conquered. Parents, if you see your kids sitting on the couch with their nose in the phone like a board AM... By all means, take those little monkeys outside and play a game of catch. Thank y'all for coming out. God bless and win the day. And like my boy Shay Hillebrand told me in our one-on-one smart session in the dojo last year, you go to hell, Andy Pettit. I love you, C-Meds. Thank you all. See you next week with the Double X Bio. Peace.